Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to be back with you live this week. I just want to say many Catholics today are finding it difficult to remain persistent in the practice of their faith, um, <laughs> much less to be enthusiastic about it. And it's because of the relentless opposition uh, to Christian principles that are coming from the world on the one hand, and the mounting pressure to accommodate the world coming from some sectors uh, within the church herself on the other. Now, I had a occasion to speak to a good many fellow Catholics on my travels last week, and repeatedly uh, I was confronted with the question of how to handle what is certainly being perceived, at least, as persecution. And so I would like to begin the program today by offering two other P words as the primary solution namely patience and perseverance. I guess the first question has to be, why does God allow his people to be persecuted? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So why did Jesus tell us to rejoice uh, when we're persecuted for our faith? And the answer is because persecution can be good for us. And number one, it helps us to take our eyes off of earthly rewards. Jesus says in Mark 8:36, For what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? Well, the clear answer to this rhetorical question is, nothing is more important than your eternal salvation. Nothing. This is the whole point of God becoming man. It is the meaning of Christ's sacrifice. And no one should be more aware of this than a faithful Catholic. Pope St. John Paul II said, When we take part in the Eucharistic sacrifice, okay, the Holy Mass, we understand more profoundly the universality of redemption and consequently the urgency of the church's mission to evangelize. The university, universality rather, of redemption. That's John Paul reminding us that Christ died for everyone. Christ paid the price of everyone's sin without exception. He redeemed us all, but salvation comes only to those who cooperate with the graces won on the Holy Cross, whom the Scripture calls the elect. In the words of Jesus, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Whatever you did for the least of my brethren, you did for me, etc. So salvation isn't just accepting Jesus— you know, uh, accepting that he died for you, but receiving the sacraments and perseverance and good works done in the state of grace. Hence the never-ending urgency of evangelization. That redemption is not salvation. We're going to talk about that a little later in the program. Number two, persecution strips away superficial belief. With Jesus, it, it's all or nothing. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not believe will be condemned. These are the words of our Lord. He would have you hot or cold, but if you are lukewarm, he will spit you out of his mouth. Number three, persecution strengthens the faith of those who endure. And we're going to close with a little meditation on that. So moving on to the fourth point, which is our attitude through persecution serves as an example to others. And that ties into evangelization also. You know, Jesus 
points out in, in the, the last uh, line of the uh, little passage from the Sermon on the Mount that I read to you, that uh, we can take comfort in the knowledge that all of God's greatest prophets, um, Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel, they were persecuted. And the fact that we are being persecuted demonstrates that we've been faithful. Jesus promised that God will reward the faithful by receiving them into his eternal kingdom, where there is no more persecution. But there's going to be plenty to suffer uh, until then. Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, Because of the increase of evildoing, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Now, he predicted that his followers would be severely persecuted by those who hated and continue to hate all that he stood for. If the world hates you, he says, remember that it hated me first. And yet he taught that in the midst of the most terrible persecutions, his followers, and that's you and I, could have hope, knowing that salvation is promised to those who persevere. Times of, of, of trial serve to sift the truly committed Christian from the fair-weather Christian. You know, when, when the multitude who followed Jesus rejected him over the teaching of the Holy Eucharist, Jesus asked the apostles if they too would like to leave. And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. And because this is true for us as well, we can likewise say with St. Paul, it's my firm expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that I will act with complete fearlessness now as always so that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So when you're pressured to turn your back on Christ, and you will be, you should follow the example of Peter and Paul and stand firm. And, and speaking of Peter, in the very first papal encyclical, First uh, Peter chapter 1, he echoed the words of our Lord from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is reserved in heaven for you who, because of your faith, are being protected by God's power until the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the end of time. This is a reason for you to rejoice, even if now for a little while you must suffer the trials, uh, suffer trials of many kinds. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that persecution brings spiritual maturity. Peter mentions uh, suffering several times in his first epistle. And when he speaks of trials, he's not talking about, you know, natural disasters or, or, you know, God's just punishment, but the response of an unbelieving world to people of faith, people like you and me. Anyone who is willing to shine the light of Christ into the darkness of this world will face trials. And so we need to accept trials as part of the refining process that, that burns away impurities and prepares us to meet Christ. Trials teach us patience, more on that in a minute. 
and, and help us to grow to be the kind of people that God created us to be. In the words of St. Peter, thus the genuine quality of your faith, which is more valuable than gold that is perishable, even if it has been tested by fire, may be proved worthy of praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. In other words, the quality of your faith, <clears throat> pardon me, is revealed in perseverance under persecution. The fourth chapter of Nehemiah gives us a good example. It talks about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And it's an apt example because, for one thing, it tells us that regarding God's response to the current apostasy in the church, 500 years of exile is not off the table. Uh, but, but it also tells us that this new Jerusalem, likewise, needs a strong defense. Nehemiah 4 says, In the work of rebuilding the wall, as it progressed, it progressed well because the people had set their hearts and minds on accomplishing the task. They didn't lose faith or give up, but they persevered in the work. And God has called us all to the task of working out our salvation. Therefore, we should determine to complete it even when we face opposition or discouragement. The rewards of the work are well worth the effort. Perseverance reveals genuine commitment. Now, Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by all because of my name, but whoever stands firm to the end will be saved. Perseverance reveals genuine faith. To believe in Jesus and to endure to the end will take perseverance because your faith will be challenged. Your faith will be opposed. And as we've already seen, severe trials sift the true Christian from the fair-weather believer. Likewise, in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, verse 6, we read, Christ was faithful as a son watching over his house, and we are that house if we hold firm to our confidence and take pride in our hope. Uh, Father Bill McCarthy, God rest his soul, used to ask his seminarians, what would you say is the single most important insight that God has revealed to us? What a question. I mean, where do you even start? Well, according to Father Bill, the answer to the question, what is the single most important insight God has revealed to us, it is that Jesus lives in our hearts. This, he says, is an exciting, dynamic, and totally transforming insight. And it is because Christ lives in us as believers that we can remain courageous and hopeful to the end. Without this, the indwelling presence fueling our faithfulness, um, you know, without this indwelling presence fueling our faithfulness, we could easily be blown away by temptation or false teaching or persecution. Now, is there a quality, a key quality to our enduring faithfulness and perseverance under persecution? The answer is yes, and I've already mentioned it, that, uh, that key quality is patience. And we'll talk about that and more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, and we'll be back after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before the break, we were talking about persecution and uh, how the answer, the solution is uh, perseverance, and that the key quality to our enduring faithfulness is patience. And it goes a long way, I think, towards explaining why God allows uh, situations like our current circumstances to, to, to go on for such a seemingly long time. You know, there's an old joke that you shouldn't pray for patience because God will give you opportunities to practice it. Uh, and the truth is, though, that the patience is developed precisely by the practice of it. So you can read in the book of Esther, chapter 6, uh, verses 1 and 2, it says, That night the king, unable to sleep, asked that the chronicle of notable events be brought in. While this was being read to him, the passage occurred in which Mordecai reported Bigthan and Teresh, two of the royal eunuchs who guarded the entrance, for seeking to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Now, Mordecai exposed a, a plot to assassinate Ahasuerus. Hence, he saved the king's life. And he's, uh, and he's listening to this being read to him, and this very king, and although the good deed was recorded in the history books, uh, Mordecai had gone unrewarded. But God, you see, God was saving Mordecai's reward for the right time because the king was now ready to give that reward just as the wicked counselor Haman was uh, plotting to have Mordecai hanged unjustly. But, you know, so although God, in our situation, God promises to... to um, reward our faith and our good works, we sometimes feel like that recompense is just is too far away, right? The, the famously said that it's, uh, the promise is just pie in the sky. Well, Scripture reveals the value of our patience in that God can be trusted to step in when it will do the most good, and he's the one, of course, in a position to know when that is, and we are not. Finally, when the king was unable to sleep, he decided to review the history of his own reign. And his servants read to him about Mordecai's good deed. And, and that seems coincidental. But obviously, God is always at work. And that's true for us as well. God has been working quietly and patiently throughout your life as well. The events that have come together for good in your life are not a matter of mere coincidence. They are the result of providence. They are the result of God's lordship over the course of your life. And therefore, we know we can have confidence, and it's one of my favorite uh, verses from the New Testament, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that's you, and that's me, and that's no nonsense. Okay, I, you know what, I... I um, Every morning uh, after I uh, say my own personal prayers and pray the morning office, I read a chapter from The Imitation of Christ. Well, here's what, uh, here's what it told me this morning. It says, as the longing for nothing exterior brings you peace, so does the complete surrender of your inmost self unite you to God. These are words I think that I really needed to hear. And I don't think it was a coincidence. Um, you probably know I typically assist at the traditional Latin Mass on Sundays and Holy Days because that's when it's offered in my diocese. I'd go every day if I could. 
But for a multitude of reasons, I have had uh, the occasion several times uh, in the last few weeks to uh, not just to assist at the Novus Ordo, but to do so on, on uh, Sundays or for, uh, you know, uh, some event. Uh, most recently, it's because Betty and I were visiting our son and his family in, uh, in Georgia. And, you know, and based on what we're just talking about, I can't but help feel that God's preparing me for something. You know, while I was on vacation, I, I, uh, I stayed uh, entirely off social media. I read books. I went on walks with my wife. I visited my son and his family. I played with my grandson. So when we came home, you know, and I started answering emails and, you know, went on Facebook and whatever, I discovered that this um, past Sunday would see the final celebration of the extraordinary form in only in one of only a couple of parish churches where it's offered in my diocese. And it was particularly painful to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, because this was the church where I first took my family to the traditional Latin Mass, back under the John Paul II's uh, Ecclesia Dei Indult, the Indult Mass, we called it in those days. And, um, and of course, I took them there until our former bishop decided that we didn't need the traditional Mass anymore and, uh, and canceled it. So our family... <clears throat> um, you know, we attended the final traditional Mass there. And if you know my story, you know, we ended up at an independent chapel until Benedict XVI's motu proprio, Samorum Pontificum, liberated the traditional Mass, and we were able to go back to a parish church. You know, and, and because Benedict left the um, decision to publicly celebrate the traditional Mass up to the pastor, you know, which seemed, and well, wait, what a good thing that is. He doesn't have to depend on on the bishop, well, um, you know, when, when the Samoan Pontificum came, the pastor at that church um, said, okay, well, we're going back to doing the traditional mass again. But it has a downside because while, um, you know, uh, I was in Georgia, the new pastor, and remember, he is the one, you know, it's up to his discretion whether they will uh, uh, celebrate the traditional mass or not. He decided that even though the bishop still allows it, he felt obliged to follow this, you know, uh, the letter of this most recent motu proprio of Pope Francis and cancel the extraordinary form again. And so once again, the parishioners of that church have lost their traditional mass. And, you know, one of the foreseeable consequences is that the already beyond standing room only traditional mass that I attend at my parish is now going to be even more crowded and so I'm going to have to go even earlier if I expect to get a seat inside the church and the parking situation is going to be worse and all the various inconveniences of, you know, the current Pope's arbitrary and clearly outdated animus towards the traditional liturgy. And, and so I had to ask myself, you know, what happens if or when uh, the traditional Mass I attend gets canceled? You know, am I, am I going to go rogue again? Uh, well, I go to the SSPX, which is, uh, you know, there's one down the road. Well, I suspect not. I mean, I've already been down that road. Um, my kids are grown now. They're either no longer in danger of losing their faith <clears throat> because they're, they're attending some uh, poorly celebrated Novus Ordo Mass. And, of course, over the past few years, I've seen some real signs of improvement. I mean, when Samorum Pontificum came out, I saw that as an indisputable sign that the coming restoration of the church was actually underway. 
I mean, I get, I, maybe I was a little premature. I, I mean, I expected and certainly witnessed firsthand that many in the church would not be sympathetic to the return of the traditional mass. I mean, to put it lightly, um, sympathetic to that mass or those who attend it for that matter. But I never, uh, thought that Benedict's immediate successor would launch a veritable, veritable pogrom against the traditional mass and the traditional Catholics. And you know, you know that when I say traditional Catholics, by the way, I'm, that goes beyond those who exist exclusively, assist exclusively at the traditional mass, but others as well. I mean, if you want an example, take a look at what happened to the John Paul II Institute on marriage and the family. But there were other signs as well. For example, the, the corrected English translation of the New Missal. I mean, that went a long way to making the, the Novus Ordo, uh, the celebration of the Novus Ordo better, making it more palatable to, to somebody like me. I mean, at least don't have to suffer through the, the willful mistranslations that were all over the, the 70, 1970 English Missal. And, and the celebration of both forms, both the ordinary and extraordinary form in the same parishes, did have precisely the impact uh, on the celebration of the Novus Ordo that Benedict XVI hoped it would. And that has not completely gone away with the banishment of the traditional Mass. I'll give you an example. One of the pleasant aspects of our visit to Georgia, um, we stayed at an Airbnb in the town's historic district. So, you know, lovely neighborhood, lots of old trees, uh, stately Victorian homes. There's a very vibrant old town scene, right, with the historic buildings now converted into restaurants and coffee shops and whatnot. Not to mention there were several magnificent 19th century churches, uh, Romanesque and Neo-Gothic, that uh, were all within walking distance of where we stayed, including uh, a very beautiful Catholic church where we assisted at the New Mass, uh, and on Sunday, they had the choir in the choir loft, accompanied by the organ, which, by the way, is the preferred way to do music at the Novus Ordo, according to Vatican II, or the, the newest, you know, the preferred way to do music at Mass period, according to uh, Vatican II. You know, if they'd had Gregorian chant as well, it would have been the uh, liturgical music trifecta, <laughs> so to speak. But I was certainly very pleased with what they did have. And even more encouraging, the priest had a couple of kneelers set up in front of the sanctuary. So when the people came out to receive communion, they had the option to either receive standing and in the hand or kneeling and on the tongue, which many people did. And so since the, the, the former is formally allowed for good or ill, and the latter is actually the official norm of the Latin rite, although you hardly ever see it, it was good to see that those who prefer to kneel for communion were uh, being accommodated. And obviously this presented no hardship of any kind for, for anyone involved. Now, I, I only know of one parish in my diocese that does the same, but I can hope that as more and more priests who were formed during the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, as more of them come into diocesan ministry and become pastors, it is to be hoped that we will see an increase of such simple steps to you know, fulfill the, the, the clear mandate of Pope St. John Paul II, who said that since Holy Mass is, quote, a great mystery, it must above all be well celebrated. In his words, Holy Mass needs to be set at the center of the Christian life and celebrated in a dignified manner by every community and 
that there is a particular need to cultivate a lively awareness of Christ's real presence, both in the celebration of Mass and in the worship of the Eucharist outside Mass. Unquote. You know, um, you know what, I'm going to save that. Uh, as I suspect you know, the, the U.S. bishops are in the midst of a Eucharistic revival. Uh, and I don't know if, you know what, if anything is happening at the parish level uh, where, where you live and move and have your being. But uh, because this Eucharistic revival is an ongoing thing, I've been looking back at some of the addresses made by John Paul II in the year 2004, which, if you recall, he had proclaimed the year of the Eucharist. And with all due respect, I find his writings a lot more appealing than, you know, what's been coming out of the USCCB. But uh, the finale of this current revival is set to be a massive Eucharistic Congress in 2004, which not coincidentally, I think, will be the 20th anniversary of John Paul's Year of the Eucharist. And we're going to hear more from John Paul as the show progresses. In the meantime, I'm going to take a short break. And we'll be right back after this. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Talking about the Novus Ordo um, and the traditional Mass, and I got to admit, it's still difficult for me to, you know, watch the casual approach, uh, not to mention the the, the many uh, abuses that are commonly committed at the typical celebration of the new Mass. You know, faithful praying in the orange position and and in imitation of the priest, the the regular use of extraordinary uh, ministers of Holy Communion when there is no genuine need. You know, again, just in the last 10 days, I, I attended a Sunday Mass at a busy parish church in the Novus Ordo. When we came home, uh, I was honored to assist at the uh, well-attended wedding Mass uh, in, in the New Rite. And, you know, in both cases, though, the faithful formed two lines for Holy Communion. Priests stood in the center, distributed uh, uh, the Holy Eucharist in a dignified, orderly, and I must say timely manner, <clears throat> as used to be the norm, you know, when, when I converted— uh, and I can assure you, the fact that there was not an army of extraordinary ministers wasn't a hardship. Uh, on the contrary, it was a blessing. And now, you know, uh, last month I was talking to our engineer here at VMPR about uh, Dr. Brant Petrie's observation a few years ago that much of what is explicit in the traditional Latin Mass is only implicit in the Novus Ordo. Uh, the celebration of the of the new mass in comparison being rather like the, the tip of an iceberg, where, you know, the great majority uh, is underwater and can't be seen. But you know it's there, right? Until you don't. And that, see, that it doesn't just apply to the laity. And that was Richie's point. He He's asking, what about the priests? He wondered if, if priests who were formed and, and whose faith is informed by this streamlined version of the mass might not lose sight of what is no longer explicit. Essentially, what he said was, you know, isn't it possible that having never been exposed to the great mass of the iceberg that cannot be seen, that within a generation or two, what was implicitly understood will simply be forgotten? And I think to ask the question is to answer it. I mean, we've seen the consequences 
20 years ago, I was in the speaker's lounge um, at a conference discussing some, you know, current theological controversy, whatever it was current 20 years ago. And I offered some insights in passing that seemed quite obvious to me. But uh, they took my fellow conversationalist, a newly minted PhD, by complete surprise. And after a while, he asked me, he said, what's your secret? Where do you find all this information? And I said, well, it's simple. I, I just read books that were written before Vatican II. See, the point is, here was a, a, a fellow with a PhD in Catholic theology who was caught completely off guard, completely flat-footed by things that used to be common knowledge amongst the regular lay faithful. Which brings us to the crucial question. Is this an unattended, unintended, if, I mean, entirely predictable consequence, or was it intentional? The many dire warnings of the popes from the 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, uh, you know, the syllabus of errors, Prescendi Dominici Gregis, Mortolium Animus, I, I would think would argue strongly for the latter. And, you know, it's just something that I was thinking about you know, when Paul VI introduced the new Mass, he said one of the, the, the thing is, um, you know, we would be losing something of great value uh, in regard to the Latin language, uh, particularly, but that understanding was more important. And, and, I, and, I, and I understand where he was coming from. I mean, that was the whole point of the, you know, the liturgical movement for 100 years, was get people, you know, don't just pray at Mass, pray the Mass. But I wonder if the consequence has not been that people who would spend that hour at Mass praying fervently and pouring their heart out to God are sitting there staring off into space and, and you know, repeating the responses, uh, you know, automatically, like a, like, a, like a parrot. I remember they uh, said, you know, I asked when my first son was in Catholic school, we started homeschooling after about the middle of uh, him being in the third grade, I think, and then did that with all the kids after. But at the time, you know, I said, um, why don't you guys use the Baltimore Catechism or, or something, a question answer catechism like that? They said, oh, that, that you don't learn the faith that way. You know, you're just, you're just answering, you're just responding like a parrot. And it's like, hmm, things that make you go, hmm. Anyway, I digress. I know... That, uh, you know, Pope Francis, what he calls backwardism, right? one of the new uh, terms, insults that he has uh, coined. But the fact is, it isn't necessary uh, to go back before the council, even before the 21st century, to find solid teaching about the liturgy and the Eucharist and the true nature of evangelization and so on. You know, like I said, I've been looking back over the documents of, uh, and addresses of John Paul II, and I want to talk about that for a minute. You know, first, the, you know, the recent events in my own life have made it seem to me, like the good Lord is pointing out to me personally, that when it comes to these uh, uh, abuses commonly committed by those priests and, and, and people who were formed without a deeper understanding of the foundations below the surface of the new liturgy, you know, I should follow the example of our Lord's own prayer on the cross and say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You know, when you go back, you read what John Paul uh, wrote, especially at the end of the nineteenth, uh, end of the twentieth, and fir first part of the twenty-first century. He had such an emphasis on the Eucharist and worship of the Eucharist, not just at Mass, but in in 
um, Eucharistic adoration. And I mean, some part of my little brain says, well, maybe he recognized the fact that people, because of the new mass, because of the, uh, the, the emphasis on quote unquote active participation, that people, you know, pouring out their heartfelt prayers in the Eucharistic presence of Christ had in fact diminished. And so he wanted to supplement uh, Holy Mass with Eucharistic worship outside of Mass. And it's just a hunch, but, but there it is. I've been in, involved in lay apostolate for over 25 years. Uh, I've been teaching RCIA for almost 15, uh, more than a dozen years of that time. And in all that time, I, you know, my purpose has simply been to, to help Catholics to answer that invitation of St. John Paul II to remember the past with gratitude, live the present with enthusiasm, and look forward to the future with hope and confidence. Because why? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, okay, I, I mentioned before I wanted to talk about evangelization. And I, I have spoken on this program often and at length about Pope Francis's strident admonition that evangelization is not proselytism, which, of course, is true. And especially in the sense in which proselytism uh, is sometimes understood or, as or under, associated with coercion. I mean, the Church rightly teaches that there should be no coercion in religion, uh, and for what should be obvious reasons. Not the least of which is, you know, as St. Augustine said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. In other words, he hasn't really converted because genuine conversion can only be arrived at through, uh, you know, uh, an uh, exercise of one's free will. But at root, the word, you know, to proselytize means to attempt to convert someone, you know, from one way of thinking to another, from one one religion to another, to convince them that your way is the right way. And, and it's fashionable to say that Catholics should just accompany non-believers, to accompany them on their journey. But that also is not evangelization. Accompanying someone on their path is not the same as inviting them to join you on the path. You remember that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the path and he is the destination. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I recently discovered a blog from the St. John Vianney Theological Seminary Lay Division. I didn't even know that there was such a thing. But there are various contributors, and what I've read so far is pretty solid. Case in point is a post called Debunking the Myths Around Evangelization. And it was written by one Andrew McGowan, who is Director of Evangelization for the Archdiocese of Denver, I believe. And he's addressing the reasons why Catholics don't evangelize. He points out that in his work, that he routinely finds both priests and lay people feel intimidated or afraid or even repulsed by the idea of sharing their faith. He said, quote, These misconceptions can paint a mental picture for us of a task that is ineffective and offensive to many people. He says, think of a street preacher, or I would say, that, you know, the door-to-door evangelist. You know, people who, like, you know, put you on the spot. Hey, if you die tonight, do you know where you'll spend eternity? 
right? You know, if that's your experience of quote-unquote evangelization, then it's no wonder that Catholics, uh, you know, want nothing to do with it. And I concur with Mr. McGowan that the most common response I've encountered uh, regarding why Catholics don't evangelize is they don't feel like they're qualified. I don't, I don't feel like I know enough to evangelize. You know, especially, again, because you know, the people that have, have possibly evangelized them seem like they have the whole Bible memorized. But, but you know, it's underlying this attitude is a misconception that evangelization is primarily an act of convincing people to believe what you believe and, and, and arguing for it, like, you know, like, on a, like in a debate or, or like a, you know, a high-pressure salesman. And that's not evangelization. But if evangelization is not about convincing non-Catholics, then what is it? Well, evangelization is primarily about sharing an invitation. You know, uh, I, Father Bill McCarthy, and this is years ago, said that uh, if you know, when you, you do the math with the available statistics, he says that a Catholic invites a non-Catholic to math typically once every 27 years. You know, it's like, okay, that's not a very good job of evangelization. Uh, McGowan, in his blog post, he uses the example of, of the Samaritan woman to explain uh, evangelization. Remember the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And, and we'll, you know, we'll talk about that. I suspect that story is familiar to you and for our purposes, especially the ending of the story. So we'll talk about that and lots more talking about uh, evangelization as sharing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and more when we return with uh, No Nonsense Catholic right after this. Talking about the definition of evangelization, what is it? And uh, and a article called uh, "Debunking Myths About Evangelization or Myths Around Evangelization," and um, the the uh, example being the Samaritan woman at the well from uh, I believe John's Gospel, chapter four. So, uh, Mr. McGowan, like I said, is interested in the end of that story where the woman goes and spreads uh, the good news to her entire town. So the question is, what did she do? He says, was it a, a, a masterfully crafted theological treatise? No. But, he says, if she didn't convince her neighbors with a well-thought-out argument, how did she spread the faith single-handedly to an entire village? And the answer is, through her testimony and the sharing of an invitation. Scripture says, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Could this be the Christ? See, uh, uh, McGowan says no one would have listened to her if she tried to argue theology with them. I think we can all agree and feel the same way about our own life. She approaches them with vulnerability, sincerity, and without compulsion. How did she have the courage to share such an invitation, he asks. The answer is she had a life changing encounter with Jesus. She actually met Jesus and knew she could invite others to come and meet him also. And he says, if you've met Jesus, you can invite other people to meet him too. 
It's like when there's a wedding, you know, I, when people are getting married, they don't have trouble inviting people to the, to the wedding. Right? I mean, the, usually the big problem is that we have, you know, there, there's too many. We want, to, we, want to, we want to invite everybody. And it's the same thing with evangelization. But he says, if you've met Jesus, you can invite others to meet them too. Well, what if you haven't? What if you don't have that, uh, that kind of personal relationship with Christ? I mean, John Paul II said, sometimes even Catholics have lost or never had the chance to experience Christ personally. Not Christ as a mere paradigm or, or value, but as the living Lord, the way, the truth, and the life. He said, it is necessary to awaken again in believers a full relationship with Christ, mankind's only Savior. Only from a personal relationship with Jesus can an effective evangelization develop. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, Scott Hahn wrote a book a few years ago called Evangelizing Catholics. And you see what he did there. It's a book about evangelizing Catholics, that is, witnessing to them a personal relationship with Christ. And it's a book about those Catholics who evangelize, right? Who are literally evangelizing Catholics. Uh, and at least, <laughs> at least it's a double entendre and not a pun. Uh, but anyway, in the book he says that uh, many, if not most, Catholics have been catechized, I mean, at least to some extent. They've been sacramentalized, right? Baptized, had their Holy Communion, um, confirmation, they go to confession. And yet they've never been evangelized. That no one has ever shared with them or witnessed to them a personal relationship with Jesus. And I, I remember a, a statistic from some years ago, you know, and they asked Catholics, uh, if they had a personal relationship with Jesus, and the majority said no. In fact, a significant amount said they didn't believe it was possible to have such a relationship. And that's why there is an urgent need for evangelization amongst our own ranks. Because, you know, before we evangelize others, because obviously you can't share something that you don't have. But it's also real to remember that evangelization is a means to an end. And that end is conversion. Okay, I'm sorry. The end is not mere accompaniment. It is conversion. John Paul II said, sharing the gospel has Christian conversion as its aim. Right? This is not some pope from the Middle Ages. Right? This, this is a pope in the 21st century, which is only 25 years in, only 23 years in, in fact. What did he say? Sharing the gospel has Christian conversion as its aim, a complete and sincere adherence to Christ and his gospel through faith. In other words, something more than accompaniment is hoped for when we evangelize. But the Holy Father wanted us to understand this especially. Conversion, he says, is a gift of God a work of the Blessed Trinity. It is the Spirit who opens people's hearts so that they can believe in Christ and confess him. Of those who draw near him, uh, of those who draw near to him through faith, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. From the outset, conversion is expressed in faith which is total and radical and which neither limits nor hinders God's gift. 
At the same time, it gives rise to a dynamic and lifelong process which demands a continual turning away from life according to the flesh to life according to the spirit. Conversion means accepting by a personal decision the saving sovereignty of Christ and becoming his disciple. Powerful words. It is the mission of the church to teach and to baptize all nations. That's the Great Commission. So it is our duty as baptized Catholics to share in the work of evangelization. According to Vatican II, because the work of evangelization is a basic duty of the people of God, this sacred synod invites all to a deep interior renewal and a vivid awareness of their own responsibility for spreading the gospel. Evangelization, then, is an invitation to follow Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the ever-urgent message of the gospel, and accepting that invitation is a prelude to conversion. Conversion is the fruit of evangelization. That is why we evangelize. Once again, in the words of St. John Paul II, since lay people are at the forefront of the church's mission to evangelize all areas of human activity, they must be strong enough and sufficiently catechized to testify how the Christian faith constitutes the only valid response to the problems and hopes that life poses to every person and society. So it is the Holy Spirit that does the converting, but it is Catholics all Catholics, including you and I, who do the witnessing. If you are Catholic, you have been catechized. Have you been catechized sufficiently? If you are Catholic, you have been sacramentalized. Do you live a life of grace, worthily receiving Holy Communion frequently and confession regularly? And then the big one, you've been catechized and sacramentalized. Have you been evangelized? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus that you can witness to and share with others? Pope Francis says we need to accompany others, and that's fine. But Pope St. John Paul II reminds us of the great truth that, in his words, the risen Jesus accompanies us on our way and enables us to recognize him in the breaking of the bread. May he find us watchful, ready to recognize his face and run to our brothers and sisters with the good news, we have seen the Lord. You know, that, that reference to the breaking of the bread, Christ accompanying the disciples on the road to Emmaus, what happened? He accompanied them along the road. They, he, they recognized him in the breaking of the bread the way we recognize him uh, in the Mass, and then he stopped accompanying them because they ran back the other way. And that's what evangelization is about. May he find us watchful, ready to recognize his face and run to our brothers and sisters with the good news. We have seen the Lord. That's evangelization. And that's no nonsense. So uh, just a couple minutes less. I, I just want to address one thing. Personal uh, relationship with Jesus. I mean, to a lot of Catholics, that, it, it sounds Protestant. 
you know, uh, more specifically, it's associated with uh, evangelical fundamentalist Christians. <clears throat> so the question is, this person relationship with Jesus, is it Catholic? Is it new? Is it modern? You know, my, my wife and I uh, have been watching that TV show, The Chosen. Uh, finally, I mean, I finally broke down, and I, I'm going to reserve comment until I've seen all the available episodes. But I will say this, that it reminds us that the apostles and the holy women certainly had a personal relationship with Jesus. But, you know, reading the Bible confirms, though, that it's possible to have that personal encounter with Jesus even after his ascension into heaven. Uh, Pope Benedict talked about the conversion of St. Paul and, and, and his encounter uh, with the Lord on the road to Damascus. He said this was not an encounter with concepts or ideas, but with the person of Jesus himself. And <clears throat> this Benedict XVI, Christianity is not a new philosophy or a new form of morality. We are only Christians if we encounter Christ, even if he does not reveal himself as clearly and irresistibly as he did to Paul in making him the apostle to the Gentiles. We can also encounter Christ in reading Holy Scripture, in prayer, in the liturgical life of the church. Touch Christ's heart and feel Christ touch ours. And it is only in this personal relationship with Christ, in this meeting with the risen one, that we are truly Christian. Benedict said it is more urgent than ever that the men and women of our age know and encounter Jesus and also, thanks to our example, allows themselves to be won over by him. You know, in The Imitation of Christ, book three of The Imitation of Christ is called Interior Conversations. And, and the whole of it is about, um, you know, Thomas Akempis represents his interior dialogue with Christ, referring to himself uh, as the disciple, right? And, and that shows us in, in chapter, uh, let me see, chapter 8 of book 2 is actually called Intimate Friendship with Christ and Conversation with Christ and Prayer is Meant to Be a Dialogue. We'll talk about these things next week. I actually had more prepared for today, but we're, we've unfortunately run out of time. But let me put it to you this way. A, the necessity of a personal relationship with Christ is not a new idea. It's not, it's not Protestant. It's not fundamentalist. It's not even medieval. It's biblical it is Catholic, and that's no nonsense. And the question is, do you have that personal relationship with Christ? And that is going to be the topic uh, of our program next week. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Father Bill McCarthy, who was something of a mentor to me, and who actually wrote the book on it. He wrote a book called A Personal Relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to share from that and uh, more about my relationship with Father Bill. Uh, next week, and along with lots more. So please join us then. And in the meantime, may God richly bless you and your family.